It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer. We're recording on Friday, March 31st, 2023. Opening day of the baseball season was just yesterday, which must mean that Passover is coming, or maybe it's the other way around. The two holidays may not be biblically linked, but I have to tell you, somewhere in my subconscious, they feel connected. And it's not hard to use the prompt of the overlap to draw some parallels. You see, right at the dawn of spring, two things are supposed to happen. Each household is supposed to take hold of a lamb and finish raising it in advance of the Passover sacrifice. And in the meantime, pitchers and catchers head down to Florida or Arizona to begin the first processes of spring training. The two holidays are both rooted in optimism and possibility. Winter is lifting. Egypt is behind us. Let's play two. My dad was a career diplomat in the U.S. Foreign Service, and he culminated his career in the Foreign Service with two terms as a United States ambassador, first in Egypt and then in Israel. One of the roles of our diplomats is to help build cultural bridges between our country and other peoples. And my dad had a regular speech, which I loved, in which he would say to people in Egypt and in Israel that in order to understand America, you had to study two things, the Civil War and baseball. I think I would actually add to that the Wild West, because I think a big part of the American story is the journey towards wealth and discovery and freedom into the unknown and all of the violence, actually, that came with that. But I like the speech because I like thinking in terms of symbols and stories. And of all of those symbols, I connect to baseball the most. After all, my family only came to America at the turn of the 20th century. We don't have Civil War or Wyatt Earp in our memories or in our DNA. I think for many Jews, baseball was the ticket into Americanness. And for many of us, those two things remain inseparable. I'm not sure I could tell you my earliest baseball memories, in part because I grew up mostly overseas until age 10. I do know that by the time we moved back to the States, I had to learn about football and then eventually about basketball as well, but I was already a Yankee fan. It wasn't because I had lived in New York. It was because, like my Jewish identity, it was handed down to me by my ancestors. My father grew up with Mickey Mantle back in the mid-20th century Yankees' golden age, by the mid-1980s, my grandmother, my father's mother, had a maybe slightly unhealthy crush on then-Yankee star Dave Winfield. My first baseball idol was Don Mattingly, which was perfect for a Jewish kid because he was a hard worker who never won a championship and then had to retire because he had a bad back. I've now handed over a love of the Yankees to my children, and they're living out that dream actually by growing up in the Bronx, just a few stops on the train from the stadium the place that I go to that makes me most feel like I'm making pilgrimage to the ancient temple in Jerusalem. And my children's emotions rise and fall throughout the summer and into the fall on the backs of the boys in pinstripes. 
Is the question of Jews, baseball in America, or maybe even more generally, Jews and American sports as ripe and poignant as it clearly once was for American Jews? According to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency in an article that came out this week, last season there were 17 Major League Baseball players who identified as Jewish, which doesn't encompass the full number of players who might actually have a Jewish parent but don't refer to themselves as Jews. Jews play professional baseball in numbers totally proportional to our size of the population, about 2%, and were not bench players either. Once upon a time, it was Koufax and Greenberg. We'll talk about that today. Today, it's Bregman and Freed. The Yankees' starting center fielder is a Jewish kid from the Bronx, Harrison Bader. And the World Baseball Classic, which just wrapped up a few weeks ago, made things even more interesting because the threshold to play for Team Israel was based on eligibility for immigration to Israel via the law of return, which is a more expansive definition of Jewishness than virtually any Jewish denomination has. In theory, the Jewish team could compete with anyone. But even as we're in what feels like a golden age for Jews and baseball, I wonder whether the special relationship between Jews and baseball will continue to hold. If Jews attach ourselves to baseball as part of our attachment to America, then our sense of arrival now, several generations into the major American Jewish immigrations here, might better encode itself into the other more popular global and American sports, football and basketball. And meanwhile, some of the poetry of baseball that makes sentimentalists like me look for thematic connections between our Jewishness and the special weird game of baseball, that stuff is going away too. For instance, I always loved that baseball was the only sport not defined by time or space. In theory, the outfield could go on forever. In theory, every umpire's strike zone was his own arbitrary sphere of judgment. In theory, a baseball game could never end. It all sounds very much like it could have been written by Abraham Joshua Heschel. But now there's a pitch clock, and soon we're going to have robot umps. It's like matzah made by machines and Passover haggadahs written and illustrated by AI. What have we gained and what have we lost? I'm honored to be joined today by Ira Burkow, one of America's legendary sports writers, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of dozens of books, mostly about sports, but... There's also a Jackie Mason book in there. I have to say that sent me down a hilarious rabbit hole as I was doing research for today of YouTube videos. Most importantly, maybe most pertinently for today, the author of the script for the documentary movie, Jews and Baseball, An American Love Story. Thanks for coming on our show today and thanks for indulging this passion and curiosity of mine. Tell us a little bit about this story um, about Jews and baseball. Why? People like me grew up under the auspices of a narrative that there was a special relationship between the Jewish people in America and baseball. What makes baseball special to American Jews and, and whether you think that's changing? Um, I think Jews, like the general public, either uh, like baseball or don't like baseball. But uh, I grew up in the late 40s and uh, went to high school in the mid 50s and baseball was more important than football or basketball. I'm not sure if that has changed or not. Uh, I know basketball has become very uh, popular, and of course, football draws the, the biggest ratings. But baseball holds a special place, I think, in all of our hearts because of the uh, the history of it. And the place of Jews in baseball is significant, maybe more for Jews than it is for anybody else. But probably started, I mean, the deep interest 
may go back to the early uh, 1920s when uh, the New York Giants were looking for a prominent Jew and they found a, a second baseman named Cone. And he played for a couple of years, but he wasn't the star. And the first really Jewish star of the 20th century was Hank Greenberg. And that elicited a tremendous amount of, of interest among Jews, especially when Greenberg was a star player in the 30s at a time that was horrific, especially for Jews in Europe. And Jews were aware of, for the most part, what was going on with anti-Semitism in Europe. And then we had a, in America, a 6-4 star baseball home run hitter who, as time went on, um, I got to know th through the years that, in fact, as we were speaking, I had dinner last night with uh, Hank Greenberg's son, Steve, who was a triple-A, played for Yale and played triple-A baseball and just narrowly missed making the major leagues. And Hank uh, was interested in doing a, uh, uh, well, actually his son Steve wanted his father to write uh, autobiography. And somehow they uh, picked me to do it. And uh, at first I said, no, I, uh, they picked me because uh, I just done a biography of Red Smith, the great sports writer. And a part of that book, a section was published in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Uh, and I was writing for the New York Times at the time. So uh, Steve and, and Hank both saw that piece and thought I'd be a good candidate to uh, fill out Hank's autobiography. So they called me in, and I had just finished four years of writing work on the Red Smith book. And I said, no, I'm just worn out from it. And I remember about almost a week later, I was on a train going to Philadelphia for a story. And I was thinking about Hank Greenberg, and I knew the history of Greenberg and the Jews in sports, and particularly in baseball. And I thought to myself, well, who better to write the book uh, than me? Because, number one, I played baseball. I was a high school baseball player, mm -hmm. a pitcher and first baseman on a, on a good uh, Chicago public league team. And then I'm a sports writer, and I followed it, and uh, it, it, uh, baseball was a great interest to me. And I knew that pretty much the Hank Greenberg story. So I called Steve back, and I said, if you, you have a writer for the uh, Hank Greenberg autobiography? And uh, he said, uh, no, not yet. And so I said, well, if the position is still open, I'll do it. But before this, I had been friendly with Hank, actually. Yeah. And I looked forward to seeing him and talking about what it was like being a Jew in Major League Baseball, being a star Jew in Major League Baseball. And so uh, uh, we connected, and um, I have a fondness for the family, and I'd like to think that the family has a fondness for me. You know, I saw an interview with you online which indicates that you're the answer to a trivia question, which is the only living person who spent real time with Hank Greenberg, got to interview Hank Greenberg, Sandy Koufax, and Mo Berg, who are in some yeah. ways the three most famous Jewish baseball right. players in the middle of the 20th century. For our listeners, Koufax, Hall of Fame pitcher, Hank Greenberg, a Hall of Fame slugger, and Mo Berg, not a Hall of Famer, but um, was known as a mysterious catcher who spied for the OSS during World War II. But he played major league baseball for about 15 years. Yeah. How did you yeah. find yourself in this position? I mean, I know you were a sports writer. I'm sure that the fact of your Jewishness made it more compelling for Greenberg and Koufax to want to talk to you. But how did you find yourself, you know, capable of building these relationships with these three figures? Well, I built relationships with a few others. Uh, I was a sports columnist and sports writer for almost 60 years. 
Yeah. And uh, I went where the story was often, but I knew the Jewish connection, of course, between Koufax, we all knew that, and Mo Berg. And I got to meet Mo Berg, and he was just, you know, he was brilliant and fascinating, and he was just a great character. I spent some time with him and with Koufax, and I actually have a, I had a correspondence with Koufax, and the same with Greenberg. But uh, I would say I did seek out being Jewish, and uh, I did seek out Mo Berg and Sandy Koufax for columns, but they were pertinent columns because they were tied to news events that uh, that both of them were involved in. Although I stretched a little with Mo Berg, and, and I wrote a column in the New York Times that it was uh, uh, something like the the fiftieth anniversary of the day he retired from baseball. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I guess that was you say that was kind of a stretch, but Mo was uh, wonderful. He lived in New Jersey with his sister, but he would come to New York to Shea Stadium at the Yankee Stadium, and he'd always get in free because he was an old ball one of the old ball players. And I made it a point; uh, it was pointed out to me, and I knew some of the history. And sitting in the in the press box, it was pointed out to me that there's Mo Berg. And so I decided to pretty much from that point on, I would sit next to Mo mm-hmm. and listen to his stories. Uh, he was a great storyteller, but also watching the ball game. And uh, I mean, how astute he was. Uh, a hitter came up who would normally hit to right field, but he was saying that the pitcher didn't sleep well last night. How he knew, I don't know. Uh, but he, was, he was astute <laughs> about stuff. And he said, uh, this guy who usually hits a ball to right field is going to hit a line drive to left. And that's what happened, you know. And so his, I think, some 15 years in the major leagues, one or two years, he was a starting catcher for most of the season with the Chicago White Sox particularly. And so he was a treat to be around. And uh, and he would tell me stories about how Eleanor Roosevelt would call him and ask him to get her tickets to a baseball game. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so he had all these connections with all these these people. And then uh, sometimes I'd be sitting in the press box. He'd come in. He'd sit down next to me. You know, and, and Koufax, I was a pitcher in high school. <laughs> and so I, I reminisce about my turn at uh, on the mound, you know. And, you know, he started as a first baseman in high school. Fred Wilpon, who owned the Mets. Wilpon was a star pitcher. I think it was Lafayette High School in Brooklyn. And Koufax was a first baseman in and Wilpon was the pitcher, uh, the oh, star funny. pitcher. You know, yeah. Koufax is such an interesting story from a baseball perspective. He, you know, started off not great and then had basically the six or seven best seasons ever as a pitcher and then walked yeah. away at age 30 famously and kind of walked away in some ways from public life, not entirely. But he's also associated with, I think, one of the most significant public Jewish moments in America in the 20th century, which is, of course, the refusal to play on Yom Kippur. Could you give some texture to that, what you know from Koufax about that decision, and also something for our listeners about what the consequences were of that decision for American Jews, what ways it put Jewishness on the map in a different way in America? Yeah. Well, what you're describing is uh, Koufax, the Dodgers were playing the Minnesota Twins in the World Series in 1965. And Koufax was slated, he was a star pitcher, along with Don Drysdale, but uh, they were a one-two combination, but it was Koufax first and Drysdale second, and Koufax was slated to open the World Series in Minneapolis with a starting pitcher, and um, 
It turned out that Yom Kippur fell on the opening day of the World Series. So Koufax decided that he wouldn't be comfortable pitching on Yom Kippur. So he didn't, and he spent the first game of the World Series in a hotel room in Minneapolis, I guess, with the television on, watching the game. But um, so Drysdale took the position of being the first pitcher in the World Series for the Dodgers. So the story goes that the Twins scored something like three runs in the first inning off Drysdale, and then maybe four or five runs in the second inning off Drysdale. And then the manager of the Dodgers, Walter Alston, comes out to the mound to take Drysdale out. And Drysdale hands him the ball and says, Skip, I know you're wishing I was a Jew. <laughs> Alston never denied the fact yeah. that he was wishing that it was, it was Koufax out there. But then Koufax came back the next day. I was then working for the Minneapolis Tribune, by the way. At that, mm-hmm. that was my first job. But then the next day, uh, Koufax, as I recall in a close game, lost the game to the Twins. But then he came back and I think won the fifth game. And then on two days rest, game seven, he pitched a shutout, as I recall. I think it was two to nothing. And uh, the Dodgers won the World Series. And Koufax, I think, was named most valuable player in the World Series in 1965. And then he was having arm problems, elbow problems. And he pitched the next year, 66. I think he was something like uh, 25 and five, but he decided at age 30, after 12 years in the major leagues, starting when he was 18 years old. And uh, he pitched, the first six years were mediocre. The next six years were six of the best years that any pitcher has ever had in the major leagues. And he decided that he didn't want to be crippled. Uh, and he thought that would happen if he continued pitching, and that his arm would be crippled. And so at age 30, he retired, which is uh, a far cry from, say, Nolan Ryan, who retired at age, what, 47? Something <laughs> first, like that, yeah. First, <laughs> you know, Koufax retired after having a great, great season. He was an awful hitter. I think he holds the record for having struck out most consecutive at-bats <laughs> and I wrote him a note and with a clipping from my days and uh, talking about how I, I got a triple in a high school game in Chicago. And so I had a correspondence with him. And so I sent it to him and he, he wrote me back and he said, at least you got a hit. I can still frame yeah. that letter. He said, yeah, you at least you got a hit. Did he ever share with you some insight about the Yom Kippur decision, or was it just he didn't feel comfortable with it and didn't want to do it? I think you wrote an article once about Greenberg in which – you said that Greenberg also set out a game in 1934, which was Yom Kippur. Yes, Rosh But Koufax, uh, a coach on the Dodgers, was a Jew named Jake Pittler. And Koufax confided in Pittler in asking him what he thought he should do about Yom Kippur. And Pittler said, I think uh, you should sit it out. And Koufax, I don't know if he talked to anybody else, maybe some rabbis, I don't know. Greenberg did talk to some rabbis. And so the conclusion for both was to sit out a significant Jewish holiday. It seems like both Greenberg and Koufax knew that they played a symbolic role for American Jews, that they represented something bigger, that they were kind of Jewish leaders of a type. And I'm curious whether they ever talked to you about what informed that decision, not that they were particularly religious people, but they felt that they were symbols. Yeah, neither of them 
was religious. And in fact, it may have been Yom Kippur uh, when Greenberg was retired. And to honor that particular day about what Jews place in the world, he took both boys, they were like 13 and 11 or something, uh, and he took both boys to the planetarium. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took both boys on, on uh, I guess it was Young Kipper, but it was in, a number of years after he retired from baseball. But he thought this would be significant to take them to uh, the planetarium. I mean, both Greenberg and Koufax grew up in Jewish neighborhoods, Koufax in Brooklyn and Greenberg in the Bronx. So their um, upbringing was Jewish. Their parents were uh, uh, synagogue goers. So they, they grew up with that kind of background, and both of them were highly knowledgeable about Jewishness, and, and I would talk to them about it. And um, But one funny thing is that Greenberg and Mo Berg played in the same uh, years, and Greenberg sometimes would want to talk to uh, Mo Berg, and he said, but Mo Berg was so odd. He said, I, I really couldn't carry on a conversation with him, <laughs> but uh, maybe I'm odd, but I, I carried on a conversation with Mo Berg. I'm curious if you think that Jewish athletes today would see themselves with the same type of role, um, symbolic role. I mean, there's one example, kind of an interesting, small example of this basketball player who graduated from Yeshiva University last year and is in the, I believe, in the Detroit Pistons minor league system, the G League or the D League, Ryan Terrell, who's the first professional basketball player that we know of who actually wears a keeper on his head while he plays. I'm not convinced he's going to make the NBA, but he's in the system. I'm curious if you see whether athletes today, Jewish athletes today, see themselves the way Greenberg and Koufax did as, like it or not, kind of ambassadors of Jews in the public square in ways that would inform their decisions. Yeah, um, well, nobody cares if they're Jewish or not, if they're in the minor leagues, generally. Uh, it's when they make the big time, when they make the NBA uh, or um, hockey. I think that there are some Jewish uh, players in, in hockey and some in baseball. I think Max Fried. Yeah, Max Fried, Alex Bergman. That, that yep. about, uh, oh, the uh, the center fielder, Peterson. Jack Peterson, uh, yeah. Peterson. Didn't he sit out, I think, uh, a game? They're made aware of the heritage of Kofax and Greenberg. Oh, that's They're made aware of that. And I, if I were still around and writing, surely I would I would ask them about it because it's part of um, not only uh, baseball history, but American history. And I would uh, approach them if I were still doing it. Uh, I went to a, the Mets locker room and um, all the players, they no longer hang around uh, at their lockers the way they used to, where you could walk over and approach them and talk to them. Uh, they're all in the trainer's room now, so uh, it's harder and harder for reporters uh, to talk to these guys. It was like um, Dave Rigetti was a pitcher for the Yankees. He was a star, a minor league pitcher, and then about to come up to the Yankees. And he was pitching in Columbus, a minor league team for the Yankees. And I, I went down to Columbus to do a story on him. And uh, and as it happens, if, if you talk to a, an athlete when they're in the minor leagues, and you show some interest in them. Uh, they have a uh, an association with you for the, when they make the majors. Uh, so uh, this one time, um, Rigetti now was a star pitcher for the uh, Yankees. And I went over to him and I asked him a question. And uh, he said, you know, he said, Ira, if I answer this question, the guys in the locker room are going to read this and they're all going to get mad at me. So I can't say uh, anything. And so at this point, an experienced reporter does only one thing. He just doesn't say anything, and he looks at the subject. And I looked at Rigetti. Rigetti looked at me. 
I looked at Rigetti, Rigetti looked back at me, and then he said, you know, these guys in the locker room don't read the New York Times, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I guess I would continue on and say that um, the Jewish players would know uh, the history of of Mm. Jews sitting out. And um, I know that there are some who are uh, one parent is Jewish or one grandparent is Jewish. And so they have to make their own decisions uh, on how faithful they are to uh, Judaism. I'll share with you a great story that happened to me once, which is a great Jews in baseball story. I was in, um, you know, what I do for a living is I teach, I lecture into Jewish communities about Jewish issues. And uh, I was in San Francisco, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago, and the Giants had won the World Series a couple of years prior. So now they were back in the World Series again. I guess it was against the Royals. This was their second time around. So usually when you go to a community where the team's in the World Series for the first time in a long time, you can't get anybody's attention, but they had just won the World Series, so the novelty had worn off. Anyway, so the lecture was scheduled for the evening of Game 7 of Giants-Royals World Series. And I said to my hosts, this is crazy. I'm in literally in Marin County in San Francisco. Nobody's going to come. It's not fair to people. And they said, no, no, people want to come. So it's you know, about 30 people sitting around a table. We're studying texts. And they said, but the one thing is what we want to do is if the Giants are about to win, we're going to pause the lecture turn on the TV, watch the last out, and let people celebrate. And indeed, that happened. So they paused the lecture. There's one guy sitting there with his Giants apparel on. They pause the lecture, turn on the TV. The last Royals batter pops out. Everybody goes crazy. And then they just turned off the TV and started the lecture again. I thought that was like the greatest moment in my own experience of Jews in baseball. (laughs) Care about it, but not enough to stop studying. Um, Great story. Um, I know you're a big NBA fan, big basketball fan. You've written a yeah. bunch of books about the NBA. You know, the big story for Jews and sports this past year in the New York area was the Kyrie Irving story. And it felt like the dark side, in some ways, of the Jews and sports story, the ways in which a professional athlete can traffic in anti-Semitic tropes. And actually, the result of that is the web hits for the kinds of ideas that he was advancing went up immensely. You know, he became a mouthpiece in some ways for a bunch of anti-Semitic ideas. I'm curious if you're following that story and your perspective on the way in which, you know, if the same way that Greenberg and Koufax can be really useful to the public image of Jews, sometimes professional athletes can also be really damaging to the public reputation of Jews. Yeah, Kyrie Irving is a great basketball player. He's an idiot. You know, I mean, his remarks and uh, including not being vaccinated, I think it's just it's stupid. But uh, there are people like Irving. I think that uh, his attention about Jews has been raised since he's made his, his remarks. But um, there are a lot of people who are just ignoramuses. I mean, if you would sit down with him and show him a, a two hour movie of the Holocaust, maybe. Uh, he might be able to equate that to slavery in, in America in, in pre-Civil War days. The commissioner of, of basketball is Jewish, and the former commissioner was Jewish. Uh, there are Jewish owners. Every once in a while, you get a, someone whose one of parents is Jewish. Every once in a while in the NBA. When I was playing high school basketball in Chicago, we had four Jewish starters, and Denny Garrity was uh, Irish. And uh, we went to play uh, at the St. George High School, and some of the guys in the stands thought that we were all Jewish. And Garrity was our best player. And so they were uh, hollering uh, virtually anti-Semitic stuff at Garrity, mm-hmm. <laughs> who was Irish. 
<laughs> Did you ever experience anti-Semitism as a sports writer from athletes or from other in other contexts because of your Jewishness? Uh, I'd have to think about that for a moment. Uh, uh, I've experienced negative views from athletes about something I've written about, the, but it yeah, had well, nothing to do with Jewishness. That's uh, fair. But uh, no, I would say not. And um, I was just viewed as just another writer, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to give you an example. of. Uh, I was in the Mets locker room, and I was uh, interviewing one of their star players. I forgot. I, suddenly, I forgot who it was. And there was a locker next to the locker of the guy who I'm interviewing. And there was nobody in this other locker, so I just sat down in the chair to interview the guy who the player was also sitting in a chair. And in a few minutes, I get a tap on the shoulder, and it was the pitcher Al Leiter of the mm -hmm. of the Mets. And they tapped me on the shoulder, and uh, he said, uh, "That's my locker, and that's my chair." I said, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry." Uh, I got up, and he said, "But I brought you a chair." <laughs> mm, that's sweet. <laughs> hey, he's a good guy, Al Leiter. Uh, that endeared me to Al Leiter from that point forward, and and a number of years later. I ran into him at a function, and uh, I told him the story, and uh, and he said, "Well, yeah, you you needed a place to sit." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you've been very generous with your time with us this morning, and I really appreciate it. Can you give us your any predictions for the 2023 baseball season as we head into the season now? Yeah. Well, I'm from Chicago, although I've lived in New York for 50 years, but I grew up as a Cub fan, and so um, the Cubs have made a few deals. And um, I see them going to the World Series and winning four straight. Well, there you go. If there's anything more Jewishly <laughs> optimistic, it's coming on this podcast for the record and saying you think the Cubs are going to sweep the World Series. Ira, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's great to hear okay. your stories and great to talk to you. Okay, my pleasure. Identity Crisis is produced by David C. Coleman and was edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC. Our production manager is M. Lewis Gordon. The show is produced with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhabit Schwartz with music provided by So Called. And Maytal Friedman is our vice president for communications and creative. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs, to find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We're always looking for ideas for what we should cover in future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear about, if you have comments about this episode or a question you'd like us to answer on air, please write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can rate and review our show to help more people find it. You can subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. See you next week. Thanks for listening and go Yankees. <laughs>